This is your Thursday Daily Delivery. I am Michael Rand. Thanks for joining me here today. As usual, we got plenty to get to today. Down the road here in a little bit, we'll get to the Twins versus Cleveland game from Wednesday night. We'll get to some NBA draft talk, Wolves drafting on the clock, number 19 tonight. But I want to spend a good part of today's show, the bulk of it, on Title IX the sweeping anti-discrimination law that went into effect 50 years ago today. Um, I've got some of my own thoughts on the process, women's sports, girls' sports that I've covered over the years, and just the importance of this legislation, and not just the last 50 years, but the future ahead. Um, Perhaps more importantly, you will hear some excellent perspectives from three Very noteworthy uh, women athletes, courtesy of interviews conducted by Rachel Blount, our excellent reporter here at the Star Tribune. She and several of my colleagues have been working for months on, you know, various projects, various um, ways to mark how important this is. And there's a great, you know, kind of final piece of that you can find on Star Tribune and StarTribune.com Thursday. But, uh, Rachel shared a lot of the audio she conducted, uh, the interviews she conducted with Mallory Wegeman, an excellent Paralympian uh, swimmer, Natalie Darwitz, of course, a great, uh, one of the all-time great women's hockey players, now a coach, and Jesse Diggins, the Olympic skier, um, gold medal winner. So all three of them, you will hear from them a little later on in this show. But first, like I said, I want to read exactly what the 37 words of Title IX that caused the seismic shift in women's sports, women's participation back in 1972 when it was signed into law. No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Seems very obvious right now, doesn't it? But maybe 50 years ago, it was not. I was not alive at that time, did not live through that era, but I can read the history books. I know perhaps a little bit about what it might have been like, but that seems obvious now, right? It seems like why wouldn't we give everybody the same opportunities regardless of sex, regardless of anything, of course, but uh, in this case, regardless of sex. So, Didn't know really what the impact of that was going to be 50 years ago. I don't think athletics were really on the horizon right away. Patrick Royce had an excellent column on this several months ago, right before the women's final four was in Minneapolis and just, you know, noting how he was slow to come around on it, how it became the most noteworthy and best thing that ever happened to his career as he gained a full appreciation for women's sports, not just from a, you know, not just from a participation standpoint, from, but from an excellence standpoint, from a standpoint of what, you know, what those sports could mean on a on a grand scale. You know, the, the 2004 women's basketball team that went to the Final Four, which remains one of the greatest teams in this state's history. So that piece of it is interesting to me. You know, another piece of it that, you know, I came onto the scene a little bit uh, later than Roycey. Obviously, I've been at the Star Tribune for a little over 20 years now, maybe closing on 25 and not too long. 
women's sports and girls' sports were more mainstream by then. We covered girls' high school tournaments just the same as we covered boys' high school tournaments when I was starting out as a high school sports reporter. We covered you know, one of my first beats at the Star Tribune, and in fact, my first beat at the Minnesota Daily way back when I was a college reporter was the, the Gophers women's basketball team. We, we covered those teams just as we would cover a men's team, as they should be. But you know, I feel like there has been still this kind of slow progression to a certain degree. It's become, I think, you know, I can't speak to this in perfect, uh, perf- with perfect clarity because I'm not living through it in a certain way, but I'm hoping that it is getting better as time goes on. But again, uh, those uh, the, the athletes that, that Rachel interviewed can speak a little bit better to, the, to that than I can. I guess the final point I want to make on it is I think sometimes we come to you know the, the notion of equality, the notion of rights because of our own personal experiences. You hear, you know, I'm a I'm a father of daughters, and so that now this means something to me. And while I think that's true, and I am a father of two daughters and one son, um, I think that's uh, sometimes gets a little bit too easy to only care about something when it personally impacts you. I get that that's how our experiences work. I get that that's, you know, kind of the process that a lot of us have to go through. We, we gain an appreciation for something as we see it, you know, up close and personal. But I feel like in the case of Title IX and anything of its ilk, any discrimination piece, um, it's, you know, women's rights are human rights. I have daughters uh, but this is a human rights issue. I-, I want my daughters to have absolute access to all these things. I assume they will. It's never even been a thought in my mind. My youngest daughter's playing soccer right now. My older daughter's playing softball right now. They'll try other sports. I will have harbor no illusions that they'll be professional at it someday, but I will fight always for their ability to participate in it, and I will assume that they have that opportunity because they should have that opportunity. But the larger point being, we can't just come to these things when they are part of our experience. We must come to them as human rights issues. The c- civil rights are human rights issues. Um, any kind of rights against a marginalized community are human rights issues and should be first, could, should be front brain for all of us, even when they are not perhaps part of our everyday experience. And that was kind of the, the message I wanted to get across here. Messages are much better though, from, like I said, those three athletes, those three interviews that Rachel conducted. Let's hear from them in just a moment. Now, the first clip I want to play is from uh, Paralympian Mallory Wegman talking about just you know, why why this is so important, why, why these celebrations of Title IX should, only, should not only be, you know, should, be, should look ahead as much as they look into the past. Look at the pioneers, I mean, the Billie Jean Kings of the movement, who, who really, the women that came before us, that put us on the path that we're on now to be able to celebrate 50 years, the way in which we, the current generation, honor them in their fight is by continuing to carry that torch so it's even better for the next generation that's coming behind us. And I think that's kind of that continuum where we... We always should be striving for excellence. And yes, there's a power in honoring where it is that we've come from, the history, the things that brought us to where we are today. But it's so powerful to look ahead because, I mean, just that's part of human evolution. We're never done growing. We can always have more room for growth. Now I want to play a series of clips now from all three of those athletes. And again, all of these interviews conducted by Rachel Blount, Star Tribune writer, 
First up will be Mallory Wegman again, um, talking about you know getting rid of language that's harmful in sports. Next, Jesse Diggins will talk about you know how she sometimes maybe thinks about how lucky women are, but that she needs to you know to get equal resources, but that she should view that as normal rather than just you know rather than lucky. And uh, then Natalie Darwitz talking about how progress has been viewed as you know women needing to you know kind of fight for everything they get fight for everything they get and maybe at a certain point they should just get their due because of who they are and what they have accomplished so here are those three clips along those lines there is still when it comes to athletics an unconscious bias in our society about the phrases we've long heard of telling a boy he throws like a girl and that's a that's an insult versus a compliment right and so think of that and then compound and throw another factor on top of that when in disability and where i think that then it becomes kind of hindering on the growth is societal perception we're finally starting to get away and understand that there's a place for females and girls in sport that there's still unconscious bias in our society towards female athletes Um, And then you add in that of an individual having a disability and women aren't perceived as, as quote unquote strong as men and people with disabilities aren't seen as quote unquote strong as people without. And so it's a really interesting thing as we kind of peel away at it, but I also view it as kind of that double-edged sword of sport is also the place that we get to go and change perception. Right. And so it's like we need to change it to create greater access and to create more opportunity. But we also get to use sport as the catalyst for change. And that's where I think this conversation really comes full circle and becomes very interesting. And as a female athlete with a disability, looking to continue to create more opportunities for that next generation as we current generation pave that path. I think many of us are very keenly aware that we are representative of a demographic that is fighting for equal access, not just because of gender inequity, but because of the perceptions around disability as well. And it's kind of the, I mean, if you will, it's kind of a double whammy that female athletes with disabilities carry. You know, when it comes to like, why aren't women paid as much as men in these areas? There's just you know, immediate kind of outrage of why not, that makes no sense, which I think is great and the appropriate response. It's just, no, that that doesn't make sense. That shouldn't be how it is. Why is it that way? How do we change it? Um, But the other thing I'm seeing that is super cool with these women who have only ever grown up with Title IX, as I have, Mm -hmm. is... um, And I think this is great because sometimes I catch myself saying things like, oh, you know, I'm really lucky that sport where we get paid as much as the men because it's like, well, of course we get paid the same amount. I'm not lucky to get paid. Like, I'm not lucky. I'm not fortunate. That's just how it is. Like, it should be that way. And I've noticed that I need to change my language to reflect that. It's like, no, we get paid the exact same amount for a race as anyone. Um, It doesn't matter what gender you are. And I think that that's really cool that, you know, one little detail I've noticed is that there isn't that language of like, oh, we're fortunate to have this. It's like, no, of course we do. Because we work just as hard and we should have this. And so we're going to, obviously, if anyone threatens to take it away, we're going to fight to protect it. But it's just like, 
I think it's so cool that they're growing up in an era where um, it's it's just the accepted thing that it should be equal, um, and and I think that's amazing, and and really a tribute um, to the women who have done so much work, and I'm sure some men who have contributed. Yep. Um, but all the people who have done work on Title Nine and. Um, for women's equality because it's so cool that there are going to be people growing up who don't have to think about that, which is amazing. Well, I think the catalyst of of, of change and who everyone's following it is, of course, the women's soccer team. Yes. You know, they're clawing and scraping for everything, and that naturally has a trickle-down effect. But, we'll, um, again, my frustration goes back to when – when do we have to stop clawing and scraping? Yeah, begging, for it right, to become yeah. For it to become a norm, right? Mm-hmm. And then as a female, the perception is when we, when we ask, when we ask, when we ask, we're seen as the complainers. Yes, yes. And when is that perception going to change? Um, just in female sports or females in general. So I, I have seen change, but it's change that we had, we've had to ask for 10 different ways. Mm-hmm. And so, again, when is that going to become the norm that we're taken serious, that we're valued, um, that we're just not shoved off to the side and saying, okay, well, we're doing this for the guys, so we have to have data equally numbered to the females, and that's about it. Yeah. When are we going to give the top resources, um, the most effective quality resources that are aligned with, with the guys? Um, and when do we have to start asking for that? So has it improved in, in 15, 20 years? Absolutely. But it hasn't come without having to shed some blood. And finally, I want to play a series of clips on the path forward. Like uh, like Mallory said at the beginning, you know, it, it's as much about what's happened as what will happen in the future. So right now, here is Jesse Diggins talking about organizations needing to be able to change. Um, I think this was a follow-up Rachel noted about how the World Cup in, in, uh, in Nordic skiing now is going to have men and women race equal distances next year for the first time. And then I want to hear from Mallory Wegeman again on the importance of finding a path for women to continue in sports after their careers are over. And then Natalie Darwitz on how the women she coaches now, um, they're willing to keep fighting for more. And then finally, Mallory Wegeman again on why it's important for the next generation to keep pushing for greater equity. I think it does. I think, uh, it reflects that willingness to change. Uh, I think that's so important and that reflects um, a willingness to say, hey, you know, maybe we've been wrong. Maybe it's okay to admit that as it is now isn't necessarily perfect. I think that humility and vulnerability is really, really important for organizations to be able to say, hey, it doesn't mean we're bad or we're awful. If we change, it just means we'll to say what if we're not right the way it is now and what if we try something different and maybe it's better and maybe it's worse and we go back who knows but until we try we don't know and i think sometimes and i think this is a superhuman trait like we're so scared to say what if i'm wrong because we're so scared of being wrong that we'll do anything to it to not have to that something wasn't perfect yeah but i think the willingness to say it's okay if we were wrong, but we won't know until we try this. Um, I think that reflects honestly a lot more maturity. Um, and I'd love to see other organizations 
adopt that maturity when it comes to women's sports because they need to say, what if we were wrong? It's not the end of the world. It just means that we could have an opportunity to do better and to treat women better. And so it all goes to kind of, like I talked about, like that professional trajectory. You know, some athletes may not compete till they're 35 years old, but they might want to be a part of sport for the rest of their life. But where's that path outside of being an actual athlete for them? If majority of our support team members, majority of our coaching or administrators are on down the line are men. And so I think that there is to that. I think that's a very, very sound point that other female athletes are bringing up because it is important. You know, equity in sport isn't just who's on the field of play. It's kind of, I would say the parallel to that is when we look at disability equality within media, we're not just talking about the stories being covered or the people on camera. We're talking about it from every standpoint. Who's writing the article? Who's on the production team? Who's the DP? Who's where is disability representation in that? And I would say same is true for female representation in sport. It doesn't start and end with who's on the field of play. It's who's the referee? Who's the sports med? Who is the team leader? Who's the head coach? Who's the athletic director? And on down the line. And I think that that's an important thing because, again, sport is so much larger than just the physical athletes on the field of play. And I think that that does go directly in hand with that path forward of what is the professional trajectory in sport for women. I, would, I think that's almost more than just what is the trajectory for a professional female athlete. It's what is the professional trajectory in sport for women at large. Um, and that's an important part of the conversation because, you know, our male counterparts get injured and they're forced into retirement because of injury. So they're a really, really intelligent athlete and have that bandwidth to then translate that into coaching. They have a natural career path after retirement into a different frame, into a different side of coaching. But female athletes don't, depending on their sport, especially don't always have that luxury because then they're just going right into another silo where they're fighting, fighting gender equality. I think our players is not like, aha, we get more than you. They're, they're coming from the standpoint of how can we make this better? Mm-hmm. Or they see us playing at 2 o'clock on a Friday and the guys play at 7 o'clock. Why are we at 2 o'clock? Uh-huh. How come we don't have the same fans in the stands? Like, what do we got to do to grow the game? What, what else can I do? We're asking what else, the females. Um, and so I think in our players, so I think they understand that the game still has a long way to go and they can be a part of furthering that path versus I get this, I get this, I get this. Um, at the end of the day, you know, comparison is a thief of joy. I understand that. Uh, but at the same time, I think they know that more could be, be done and they could, they can deserve more too. And it's kind of like that passing down. It's like a family tradition. Grandma teaches you how to make her famous fill in the blank in your family mm-hmm. you learn how to make it you maybe don't understand why that's so important to make uh-huh. until you're in the position of now teaching somebody else how to make it and you realize why that tradition is being carried on generation after generation i think it's the same thing with with leadership in female sport you maybe don't fully understand why that thing is important 
until you're in the position of realizing like the only way that this conversation continues to progress is if we all collectively do our part to make sure that we serve in a leadership role so it can be passed on to the next generation so they can be brought into the leadership role pass the baton and they continue moving the needle forward and again i hope that brings things into further perspective Great job by all of our writers, all of our reporters, columnists who have worked on this over the past few months. Please go read their latest effort, Star Tribune, startribune.com, as we celebrate 50 years of Title IX. Take a playcation to Mystic Lake for 24-7 gaming, fun restaurants and bars, and luxurious hotel rooms. And join Club M to bask in the rewards. Follow the lights to Mystic Lake, where every day is play day. Now we have avoided it for as long as we can, but we must talk about the meltdown at Target Field on Wednesday night. Twins, I think my colleague and Monday uh, podcast partner Patrick Royce probably summed it up best on Twitter when he <laughs> when he said, um, "Let me find it here." That was a good win, then a bad loss, then a great win, then a groin kicking loss all wrapped up into one tilt. That pretty much describes what you saw or what you maybe didn't see, depending on how much you stayed up for. Long game, late game. <clears throat> Twins lose 11-10 to to Cleveland. Lose possession of first place in the process. Twins were ahead in this game 5-1. to and then Cleveland rallied to take a 7-6 to lead. And then the Twins rallied right back in the bottom of the seventh with a four-run inning to take a 10-7 lead. Gio Urshela hitting a three-run home run with two outs, seemingly putting them on course for a victory. But Cleveland scores four runs in the top of the ninth to win 11-10, doing that damage against Emilio Pagan and Griffin Jacks, primarily against Pagan. Rocco Baldelli trying to squeeze a second inning out of Pagan in the ninth, kind of limited in the bullpen. They'd already used um, they'd used Joan Duran for quite a bit in Tuesday's game, so it didn't feel like they could do that. They were stretched a little thin because of the extra inning game on Tuesday, although... They were coming off an off day Monday, so you would think they might have a few more, a uh, few more things to throw at Cleveland. But that's what they went with, and Pagan not successful in the ninth inning. He had three straight hits to start the inning. Griffin Jacks came in. Cleveland kept it going, got a couple more things going. Um, they got a sacrifice fly, a single, and that was your ball game. Twins went meekly in the ninth inning. So. Where do you go from here? Um, well, let's hear first from Twins manager Rocco Baldelli, who called the game and the last two games unsatisfying, which is probably the understatement of the year after losing two late leads against a division rival to lose the division lead for now. It, it's, it's not a fun one. It's not an easy one. You know, the ups and downs over the course of a game like that, they, they do take a little something out of you. There, there's no way around that. Um, you know, on a night like like this, I mean, we played two games in a row now like this that that feel very uh, unsatisfying, and you leave kind of pissed off. So, um, but again, you can't you can't focus on that for too long because we have a game. 
Now, Baldelli was asked about the bullpen. He was, you know, the, the question seemed to try to give the bullpen a little bit of a pass because of how much work they've been asked to do all season, frankly, but uh, but also in these last two games. Let's not forget, Twins' bullpen has now thrown 287 innings this season, fourth most in the majors. Perhaps a lot of those short starts catching up to them, and in this one, certainly caught up to them because Sonny Gray, who looked like he was cruising fairly well through the first four innings, uh, got knocked around and knocked out in that fifth inning when Cleveland started to rally. So they were relying on the bullpen to get a lot of outs, couldn't get it done. Um, but Rocco Baldelli was pretty pointed in saying, you know, hey, these guys have gotten it done before. More or less, they just need to be better. Yeah, I mean, yes, but we have to get outs. I mean, you know, uh, pitching in a major league bullpen is not an easy thing to do. Um, I'm going to be the first one to say that. But, uh, you know, we got to find a way to not give up, you know, a bunch of runs and you know every time we we come back and score some runs um you know we just got to finish out some innings we got we got to finish out some at bats and um we can do that i mean we've certainly done that we've had you know our guys in our bullpen have done a lot of uh good work for us this year and um i think we're just hitting a kind of a, a streak or a skid um with just executing pitches and i'll be honest i checked out on this one when it was 10-7 twins i had other stuff going on doing you know getting ready for bed stuff like that I was like, okay, I, I'm going to look at the score in the morning. I assumed it would be a Twins win. I looked, and it was 11-10. to 10. I could not believe it. You just you can't have a game like this happen in such a, in a game of such a magnitude. You've, you've got to make sure you've got that thing locked down. So, you know, that's just, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe that's, I don't know if that's bullpen usage, if it's just not having the arms, but you can't have a game like this happen. It's just... It's just you're gonna look back on this one. I think these last two games, and you know who knows how the rest of the net, the rest of the season goes. There's almost a hundred games left. I know there's a lot of games between these two teams left. There's a lot of games between the Twins and other AL Central teams. It's not like this is season over. Curtains, everything like that is done. But my goodness, when you lose back-to-back games like this, when you they kind of gnaw at you and you say, "Ah, oh, man, we." we we had this one. We had the one the other night. We were up late in both of them, and both of them get away from you. That is going to be hard to swallow. So I'll be interested to see how they bounce back from this kind of loss, these kinds of back-to-back losses. Um, and, yeah, I would say uh, unsatisfying is the understatement of the year. Let's move our attention now to the NBA draft. It is finally here tonight. Wolves have the number 19 overall pick and three picks in the second round. So opportunities, options for new uh, Timberwolves president Tim Connolly, depending on what he wants to do, depending on what other teams do, you know, impacting both who they might get at 19, whether or not they are able to possibly trade that pick for more immediate help. Connolly did meet with Twin Cities Media on Wednesday. I want to play a few clips from that because I found that to be pretty interesting. He was pretty honest in his assessment of kind of what we should expect from the number 19 pick, especially right away, um, saying essentially, you know, when you're a playoff team and you you draft this low, if you look at playoff teams, they aren't, aren't usually playing rookies in their lineup unless something weird has happened and they've got, you know, someone else's high lottery pick or something like that. So here's Connolly on kind of expectations that you should have for what might happen immediately with the number 19 pick if they do indeed keep it. Yeah, I think, look, the 19th pick, if you look at the, the final eight teams this year, 
there's not many teams that were playing rookies. So we're drafting tomorrow night for the next three to five years, three to seven years. If we expect the 19th pick to make an instant impact on a, on a team who was in the playoffs last year, it's unfair for that, that player. I think, you know, you want to get on base with 19, how much you want to swing for the fences. You know, it depends on who's there. Um, but, I mean, there, there's some guys in a range that have skill sets that we presently lack. I tend to like guys that have certain characteristics that tend to work. These supremely talented guys, they can do it with or without those characteristics. But um, for the, the majority of the league, it's about kind of work ethic. It's about uh, role acceptance, um, willing to listen to role definition. It's about, you know, self-motivated workers, I think. And I think you see most of those guys who make it who aren't those elite, elite top 20, 30 guys. That's pretty common theme with all those guys. Now, who will the Wolves ultimately end up taking if they do keep the pick? That's a good question. We had Lavelle E. Neal on a couple days ago talking about wanting Mark Williams, the center from Duke. ESPN currently has um, Walker Kessler, center from Auburn, mocked to the Wolves, uh, NTAA Defensive Player of the Year. That would make a lot of sense if he is there. I think our own Marcus Fuller had the Wolves taking Ty Ty Washington, um, guard from Kentucky. That would also make a certain amount of sense. ESPN's mock has him going 22 to Memphis, so he could be available as well. And I've seen him in other Wolves mock drafts. So going to be some options on the table for them. One of those options also, though, perhaps to make a trade and get some more immediate help. And Tim Connolly did not sound like that was, uh, did not like sound like, didn't sound like that was something that was off the table at all. Yeah, I mean, we're super open to it. We've had a countless conversations about using that pick to add a more um, quickly impactful piece. But, you know, 99% of these conversations are just theoretical. We'll see if they're actionable. And, um, you know, today and tomorrow, they take on a more actionable tone. But, it's hard to get trades done. You know, it's it's a lot of different motivations. There's a lot of fear involved with trades. I think teams um, can be at times a bit overly cognizant of you know, winning or losing a trade. But it's like the players. Just if your team's better, you win the trade. Probably the best news in all of this is we're going to find out, right? We're going to find out what happens Thursday night. And right not too long after that, we're going to probably see some more offseason movements, see what the Wolves can add to this roster, see what kind of meaningful pieces they can add to this roster after last year's 46 and 36 finish. That's what Connolly was brought in for, right? This is a team that already has a foundation. It's a team that already has had a certain amount of success. Can he and the rest of his staff push them to another level, to that consistent, you know, to be consistently competing I mean, not for a championship, at least not right away, to be consistently competing to be in a top six, top four spot. That's what you aspire to be. Give yourself a chance every year to go into the playoffs and be competitive and maybe, you know, with the right combination of smart personnel moves and progression from your roster, get into that position where you could be a championship contender. And that's the step you want to see them take next season, moving closer to that consistent winner as opposed to just, hey, wow, that was a really nice season. Hope they can build on that. That's what this draft and this free agency period is all about. And we will start to get some answers on Thursday night. Finish quick with the cooler. Colorado up 3-1 now in the Stanley Cup Finals. Great overtime goal. Some question whether Colorado had six men on the ice or not. Tampa Bay kind of complaining about that a little bit. But bottom line is Colorado now up 3-1 with a chance to close it out at home in Game 5. 3-2 overtime win in that game Wednesday night. Exciting finish. 
not necessarily exciting if you are a Bolts fan, but hey, that is hockey. That is life. A great goal. Go watch the clip if you have not seen it. It was a thing of beauty. That'll do it for today. Should have lots of NBA draft talk on Friday's show. And again, a reminder, no shows after that for the next week and 4th of July. Be back at it after that on July 5th. But we will be back tomorrow for more daily delivery. Thanks for listening today. We'll see you again on Friday.